This episode of the Alley on the Run show is brought to you by Aftershocks. Welcome to the Alley on the Run show. I'm Allie Feller. I'm your host, and today is listener Q&A day. Today's episode comes to you in very high demand. Katie Burke was a guest on episode 70 of the Alley on the Run show. She's the chief people officer at HubSpot, a massive tech company based in Boston, and she's back today to answer all of your career-related questions. We're talking raises, promotions, tricky bosses, office politics, changing industries, and so much more. So let's just get right to it, and let's hand this mic over to the career queen herself, Miss Katie Burke. Katie Burke, I am so excited to welcome you back to the Alley on the Run show. I am so excited to be back. Thank you for having me. Okay, so remind everyone who you are, where you're from, and what it is that you do. I am Katie Burke. I'm the Chief People Officer at HubSpot, which is a marketing, sales, and services software company located in Boston. And that is where I live, work, and run most days. Okay, so the way I think of you is you're just like this career queen, wealth of information, and we are going to take so much of that from you today. I'm super excited for this episode. But before we get into the Q&A, I actually want to ask, because you told me something fun over email, which is that you're about to take a sabbatical. So I am. So one of the cool benefits of working at HubSpot is that every five years, we give people a month off uh, and some pocket change to travel with because we really want people to uh, work hard, but we also want them to rest, relax, and recharge. And so I'm actually one of three HubSpot executives that will be on sabbatical in August, and we hope that that sets a really positive tone around the need to rest and recharge in addition to working really hard. That is awesome. And how are you planning to spend your sabbatical? I'm going to be away for a few weeks in Italy with the whole Burke family. And then I'm actually going to take a week in Vancouver solo to just recharge, work out, and read some books, which I'm really looking forward to. That sounds amazing. I'm so happy for you. And as always, I just think it's so great what you're doing at HubSpot and just setting a really amazing example for all the other companies in the world and especially in the U.S. who just really need to follow suit. So I hope anyone listening who is running a company, starting a company, growing a company, do what Katie's doing, do what HubSpot's doing. They're totally doing it right. And I love it. Well, I appreciate that so much. But I also think it's important to note that part of the reason why I'm taking the sabbatical is that I am not always great about recharging. And so the way I think about it is every company and every person is on a journey on that stuff. And the best you can hope for is to work for a company that really cares and listens and improves on this stuff. And so uh, I think it's really important that both companies and leaders listen to their bodies and listen to their people on this stuff. I love that. All right, so I want to jump into the listener Q&A portion of this episode. But before we do so, I have to say that we received more than 100 questions for you, Katie, so many of which came down to one thing as I was reading them, which is confidence. So many people wrote in asking how to stand up for themselves, how to go for a job they might not be fully qualified for, and asking how to ask for a raise. And we'll get into the specifics and logistics on those topics. But so much of what people were asking, the way I was interpreting it, came down to confidence and really just having the confidence to go after what you want. So I'm wondering if you can start us off with any blanket advice on how to develop your confidence in the workplace. 
I am so excited that people had questions about confidence because I just think the biggest misnomer in the world is that some people have it and that by it I mean success and some people don't. And I really want more women in particular thinking about confidence as a muscle that they build up. And so the first big tip is don't think of the rest of the world as having it and yourself as not. Uh, The second is to try small things first. So for example, a lot of people will, you know, try to express their confidence for the first time asking for a massive raise or speaking in front of 10,000 people. Um, I refer to them as micro risks. If you take micro risks, it's a lot easier to build up to uh, bigger risks. And then the third thing is pick uh, confidence tests that play to your strength. So let's say, for example, you're more introverted, take a risk that involves a, a written piece or something creative. If you're super extroverted, take a risk by introducing yourself or standing up on stage in front of other people. Um, if you lean into your strengths when you work on your confidence, I think it tends to get a lot easier to build on those. Love that. The second thing that came up, I swear no fewer than 20 times, was some version of a question ending in, in a nice way. Like, how do I speak up for myself at work, but in a nice way? How do I quit my job, but tell my boss in a nice way? How do I train someone who doesn't think they need training in a nice way? There was so much concern from women about being nice or being perceived as nice. I would love your take on that. So this is a really, really hard one. Um, The first thing I would say is not everyone is going to like you. You could be the nicest person in the world and so kind and friendly to others. And ultimately, not everyone in the world is going to like you. And that's really hard for people who have been pleasers all their lives. Uh, I may have a little bit of that in Gene and me to get used to and adjust. And so one of the things you have to remind yourself really early in your career is all you can do as it relates to being kind is your best. You can't control how other people react to your kindness and to your empathy. Um, the second thing is I listened as all, you know, uh, I think as all women do at some point to Oprah and reconnected with Oprah because, you know, she's my girl, uh, or at least in my head she is the other day. And I was listening to a podcast with her and Marianne Williamson. And one of the things she said is, you know, in, in any time in your life, you can run towards love or you can run towards fear. Um, what you can't do is control how other people react to that. And so, um, what I would say is, It is so lovely to me that so many women who listen to your podcast, women and men, I should say, um, want to do things in a nice way. And I very much appreciate that and can sympathize. But it's also equally important that every single one of them reminds themselves not everyone is going to like you all the time. And oh, by the way, that's not your goal. I've made really tough calls and really tough decisions in my career and had people come back five years later and go, you know, I really hated you at the time, but that was the right push or the right feedback. So you have to do two things. You have to remind yourself that you're not always going to be liked. And two, you have to figure out how you can be both authentically kind and at the same time do what's right for your company, your organization, or your team. And that tension is always, always really hard. A few mistakes that I think people often make in an attempt to be nice, sometimes people couch the feedback and bury it so far that the listener actually misses the message. And so I find um, Kim Scott's advice around radical candor to be helpful. You really do have to give the hard advice and you can't beat around the bush because otherwise doing so is simply conflict avoidance. And that's ultimately solving for your need to be liked, not that person's need to grow. 
the second thing I would say is, again, if you couch in, and I'm so sorry, Ali, I'm giving you this feedback, but I hope we can still be friends. Your job when you manage people, unfortunately, is is not to be nice. It's to help people grow and to help your business grow. You can do a lot of really challenging things with great empathy, but your job is not to be friends with people. And so you also have to remind yourself of that. And the third thing is that the way you create connections, capacity, and psychological trust within your team all exist far before you have to give someone tough news or feedback. So you can do a million nice things for people in your organization long before you have to have a tough conversation. And if you do, it makes it clear that the tough conversation is coming from a place of caring and compassion, um, even when it's when it's challenging. And so um, that's a long-winded way of saying don't always try and be liked. Make sure that you're direct with the feedback so people aren't clear on it. And then third, make sure that you're thinking about ways to create psychological safety long before you have to give those hard messages. It makes it a lot easier to recover from them, even if feelings are hurt in the process. I love that. I so agree. I, At my old job, the minute that I got promoted, I stopped caring if I was nice. And I was never, I never cared that much about being liked in the workplace. Um, I kind of felt like if it happens, if I make friends here, great, but that's not why I'm here. And so I'm glad you said that, that that's not why you're there. And there are still so many opportunities to develop meaningful relationships if that's uh, if that's the goal. But that's great advice. The last kind of blanket question I want to ask, because it applies to so many people who wrote in, was that lots of people want to make career changes, but they don't know where to start. So many people wrote in saying they wanted to start a new career, and a lot said they want to start a new career, but don't want to go back to being an intern or assistant. What do you tell them? I tell them you can't have your cake and eat it too. I Thank think you. Either. Yeah. So I think, you know, there are days for sure when I come into HubSpot and I think sometimes we were talking the other day about if you didn't care about money or career or whatever, what would you do? And I think to myself, like, I would run a bookstore and a stationery store and I would like take lunch and put a little sign on the door and basically live the life of Meg Ryan and you've got mail and how great would that be? Um, and then I realized like that's not what I decided to do with my life. And oh, by the way, I would probably get bored or frustrated in some capacity. And so one of the things you have to reconcile is that your personal passions and your professional work aren't always going to be one and the same. And if there is something that you really believe that you want to do professionally, there is nothing stopping you from doing it. But you can't have it all and not make any sacrifices. So for example, a lot of people will think about starting their own business and they'll want to <clears throat> not take a step back, not take a pay cut, not have to go fundraise, um, not have to do informational meetings, not pitch people, but then be where their hero entrepreneur is. And that's simply not plausible. Um, and so one of the questions I would ask for people who are considering career switchers is what's motivating you? Uh, and if what's motivating you is a personal passion, then one of the questions I would ask is, why do you want to do it for a full-time job versus something you do recreationally? So by way of example, um, I really like fitness. At one point, I got certified to be a bar instructor. And then I realized what I really like to do is go to bar classes. I don't need to quit my corporate job and be a bar instructor. I had a lot of fun in the process and learned a lot, but I don't want to quit my job and live a totally different lifestyle. So you have to be able to segment your motivations for doing something with whether or not it scratches a professional itch for you. 
And then second, you have to really do your homework. Every great entrepreneur I know, um, whether they've started a small local business or a massive global conglomerate has started by doing their homework. And so if you're just sitting there thinking and wishing and hoping that someone's going to show up and knock on your door with a great career change, uh, that's not going to happen. The onus and the work is going to be on you. If you really don't want to take a pay cut or an internship or something similar, then you're likely going to have to work two jobs for a little bit. And I know that's not the news that most people want, but I also encourage you, regardless of what age you are, what degree you have, if something is really what you want to do long term, it's never too late to do what you wanted to do what you wanted to do growing up. But it's not going to come easy, and no one's going to come hand it to you. Love that. I get so conflicted every time I talk to you, Katie, because part of me wants to talk to you forever. And part of me is like, I need to hang up and go do things right now because I get so excited and motivated talking to you. So, Well, that's good. I think, (laughs) to be honest, I think on career chats tend to get really heavy and serious. And the reality is like, work is such a privilege. It's an opportunity to do great things. And I've learned so much from things that haven't worked out and things that have. And so rather than sitting in your role or wherever you are right now, listening, bemoaning where you are, instead think about like, okay, what strengths do I have? What people do I know that help me grow? And how can I figure that out? I think women put a lot of pressure on ourselves. And so part of what I would do is say, take a deep breath, um, take it easy on yourself, and then it makes it easier to make good decisions. All right. And with that deep breath, Let's get into some specific listener Q&A and our first category. I broke them into categories. So first, these questions all pertain to applying for jobs. So the first question here is, what are the top three things that make a resume stand out? First thing is numbers. So actually moving the needle on something. So your quantifiable impact I can already hear people saying, no, but I didn't do sales, so I can't put a number on there. You quantify impact in lots of different ways, but one of the things, so for example, let's say you're a writer, I would wanna see how many views um, you grew your blog to or how many subscribers. Figure out a way to quantify your impact at an organization, because that's what people are ultimately looking for is impact or results. Uh, Number two is the ability to connect your experience with the role you're applying for. Um, And so if you're expecting me to do the work to connect the dots, you haven't worked hard enough. Um, And then the third thing is a proven track record of learning and growth. Um, So I don't care if your resume is perfect. Um, I don't care if everything you've ever done lines up with my expectation. What I am going to look for is a history of working to make the best of things and learning and growth. Um, And if you can show that, I think your resume is going to stand out from the pile. Do you really need to know someone to get a job at a company? No. And in fact, I actually would encourage, I I would advocate on two sides of this. One is if you are a manager and only hire people you know, you are making a big mistake. And that includes both diversity of thought and perspective, but also diversity of background, which is hugely valuable as you build out your business. So if you're a hiring manager, don't just rely on people you know. And two, if you're a person sitting there thinking, should I apply? Should I reach out to this person? Should I do it? Absolutely do it. No one in the world is going to come to your door, ping you and say, we have this great opportunity for you. Uh, So take that onus on yourself and don't be afraid to reach out to a few people that frankly reject you. Uh, You absolutely do not need to know someone at a company to get hired. What should an awesome cover letter look like? So your cover letter is your ability to fill in the blank space between your resume and experience and what the job looks for. Uh, So one of the mistakes most applicants make is, okay, Ali, I'm coming in to meet with you about a role in your podcast. 
I know I don't have quite the experience you look for, but I'll explain that to you when we meet face-to-face, that makes a big assumption that you're going to meet me face-to-face. And so your cover letter should do all the work for you. And so the way that I think about it is, ideally, I organize my cover letters in three bullets. Those three bullets should tie directly in the middle of your resume and the job description. And if they don't, you should redo it and make it more clear. The other thing is your cover letter should not be dense. It should be easy for people to scan. Most recruiters are going to spend less than 30 seconds scanning it. And so you need bullets, highlights, high-level insights. You shouldn't write your first novel in your cover letter. (laughs) Love that. Yay or nay, applying to more than one job or role at one company? Nay. Why? (laughs) Uh, It just honestly makes people confused about what motivates you. And that's a really critical part of a job where you're getting hired for potential. Um, And so if, for example, you apply for a job and the recruiter says to you, actually, Allie, you'd be a much better fit here. Totally fine to apply. But just applying and doing kind of the spray and play kind of mode where you apply to six jobs at a given company just makes the recruiter think you don't know what you actually want. Okay, I love this next question, and I'm excited for your answer. How should I explain a two-year gap in employment to be a stay-at-home mom? Do I mention kids in the interview, or is that a turnoff to some employers? Uh, So one, you shouldn't work at a company where having children would be a turnoff. Um, So I highly recommend that you uh, make sure that you think of your time being a mom as an asset to your ability to contribute to the workforce versus a negative. Um, With that said, I get that for some people that gap can be hard to explain. Um, A few things I would consider. One, there's a startup called Work. It's W-E-R-K, based in New York, actually started by some amazing women from McKinsey. And they're really focused on redefining the workforce. Uh, They have a lot of great jobs that emphasize flexibility and allow people to match their flexibility profile to roles. And so one of the things I would think about up front is just clarifying what how does being a mom factor into what you want in a job, if at all, and it may not you may not care at all about flexibility. Um, But if you do, I would use a resource like work or something similar up front. Um, two, it really depends on the job and the resume, what you do. Um, and I also would say it depends on your personality and what you're interested in. So for example, some folks in finance, uh, really want you to outline the job, but I I think what I would do in those, in that situation, being authentic to myself is, uh, to note it on my cover letter. I think I would own it. And I would say, I'm an awesome mom who wants to be an awesome leader at your company. Um, and that way there's no questions about it. Uh, usually there's also a way to bring it up with your recruiter in a way that makes it clear what you did during that time and why. Um, And then you can figure out with them how you navigate that through the hiring process. Awesome. All right. That brings us right to our next category, which is raises, promotions, and negotiations. First question here is, how do I know what I'm worth? You have to do your homework on this. And what most people do is they Google the role they're currently in and they assume that they're underpaid and they go into their boss with, you know, the Google search results and say, I'm totally underpaid for X role. What you should really do is understand your organization's compensation philosophy, if there is one. Um, So if you don't know, you can absolutely ask your manager. So separate from your role, just say, hey, how do we think about compensation at X organization? And they may say, you know, we think about compensation as a combination of your core salary, your benefits, if there's stock options, things like that. Um, But at least you'll get an answer from them on what the philosophy is. If you don't know, that's okay. It could be a smaller startup. But if you work for a bigger company, they should know. 
If you are working for a smaller organization, you can use inputs like Glassdoor and other job sites, and I recommend using those as inputs. However, and it's a big however, those often don't have experience grades in them, and they also don't have location-specific insights. So for example, someone doing a role in Omaha, Nebraska is certainly going to be likely paid less than someone living in Manhattan. And so just know that rather than going into a salary negotiation with this is what I'm worth and I found it on the internet, that's usually not an informed perspective on what you actually deserve. So first things to do is to do your homework on both your organization's compensation philosophy and then to how to think about benchmarks for your role and then come into a negotiation, which I'm imagining we're going to talk a little bit more about um, with a sense of what that might look like. It is totally more than fair to understand what ranges are for your given role and to ask for more, but you have to do so while having done your research. Is there any way to ask my coworkers what they make so I can negotiate higher? (laughs) This is a tough one because honestly, as an HR professional, it's hard. So on one hand, Asking your friend negates what your friend brings to the role and some nuances of a skill set. With that said, I'm not naive as an HR professional to know that people don't talk about it. I'm personally a little bit old school on this. I never go to my friends or colleagues and say like, hey, Allie, how much do you make? Um, What I do do and what I think I've done my whole career is to ask thoughtful people in similar industries and positions like, hey, as you're thinking about ranges, what's important? Or as it relates to equity, what are some things I should be thinking about and looking for? I personally just have never seen a peer conversation around comp go go (laughs) well. Um, Because honestly, if you're making a whole lot more than your peers, then you're going to feel super awkward too. What I will say to know, regardless of where you sit, is rather than asking friends what they make, chances are if you're asking that question, you feel undervalued and that you'd be far better off investing in a conversation with your manager around what that could look like and what your goals are as it relates to what you want to make. Okay, so you get the job offer. What advice do you have for negotiating a salary? Well, first things first, negotiate in general. Like most, you know, it's a total stereotype, but a lot of women don't know you can negotiate. The other thing I would say is your salary is not the only thing you can or should negotiate on. So you can negotiate on base salary, on bonus, on equity, on flexibility, on hours, on days off, on vacation. All of those things are negotiable. And so I think sometimes people go in thinking, this is, you know, win or lose. And if I don't get to X number, it's a failure. What I always think about is, what do I care most about in this negotiation? And how can I convey that as part of the process? So um, two things. One, don't negotiate just after you receive the offer. Make sure that you're clear about your expectations going in, ideally with a recruiter up front. Uh, and then from there, you should absolutely feel free to negotiate. Just be clear on what you're negotiating on uh, and what your company is open to negotiating around as well. So I know I've been in a situation before where I've been interviewing with a company and in my head, I know what I want. Um, Let's say I'm going to do made up numbers here. Let's say I go in knowing I want $100,000 salary, base salary. The minute that they say to me, you know, sitting there in person, like, okay, and what are you thinking for compensation? Because I feel like they always put that question on you, even though they have a number in their mind. They'll ask the person interviewing, what do you have? And I find myself saying $80,000. Like, I don't know why I do that, but I had a number and then I downplay it right away. Obviously, screw myself over. How do you handle that when it's the in-person, if I don't, if I'm not working with a recruiter, 
how do I handle, you know, kind of the unfortunate awkwardness of that situation of talking money and of answering that question? So in general, it's good to get comfortable talking about money before that discussion. So I would say that starts with even being comfortable talking with your friends about it, right? Like who's going to pay for this round of drinks? Who's going to pay for this? How are we going to think about our rent? Women should be having more conversations with their partners around finances going into. And so the first thing I would say is, if a dollar amount is coming out of your mouth for the first time in three weeks in a salary negotiation, you're probably doing it wrong. So I would practice talking about money in general in life. I think that's a good life skill to have. Second, as you relate to salary negotiation, you're exactly right. If you say $86,000, the recruiter is going to go, great, that's where I need to get. And so you absolutely have to practice when you're asked saying confidently, this is the amount I would like to make as part of the rule and not flinching. You can't say, I'm sorry. You can't say, I hope that's okay. You can't say, or whatever else you're going to offer me, there can be no caveats. And so that's one line that is actually worth rehearsing as part of your overall script going into the interview. And if they come back and say, you know, let, let's say I say to them $100,000 and I sit there and I say it confidently and they say, OK, well, that's quite a bit above what we're looking to compensate for this role or what we can offer. What's my response? So it depends on where you are. So let's say, for example, you're in the third stage of interviews. One of the things you could say at that point is, you know, I absolutely love the team and what you're doing here and I'm really excited about this role. So I'm hopeful we can work it out. That doesn't close the door. That doesn't say that's fine. Give me $20,000 less. But it makes it clear that you care about this and that you're not just going to slam the door if the offer isn't for $110,000. Um, so what I try and do is put at that point, the ball is back in their court. Let them decide whether or not they're going to make you an offer. And honestly, if they come back and lowball you, I still think that's good practice because you still learned how to take a stand for yourself. And that's important. Love it. Okay, let's talk raises. A lot of questions about this, about how long to wait before asking for a raise and how to ask for a raise. Yes. Uh, do not ask for a raise in your first six months in a job. It's just a bad look um, unless there's some horrible, egregious thing that's happened to you in your first six months where you're like doing five people's role or something similar. Uh, I don't think you should ask for a raise in the first six months. Um, with at around the six-month juncture, I do think it's okay to talk to your boss about what's important to you long-term, both in terms of your goals professionally, but also in terms of what motivates you. So one of the mistakes people make when asking for a raise is typically by the time you're asking for a raise, it's during compensation review time, and so their budget is already set. And typically, they have at least a guideline of what they're thinking. What I try and do is lay the groundwork early. Um, so, hey, you know, one of the things we've talked about is my path to growth. This year, I'm really, really interested in a promotion because I believe my work reflects that. Uh, so I wanted to talk to you about what that would take. And so it makes it clear you really care about the title part of things or progressing in your uh, career in terms of title. On the salary side of things, one of the things I like when people say is, you know, as you know, in my previous role, I was making $100,000. I know it's not, you know, I, I know that's not what I'm making right now, but I want to talk to you about the plan for how to get there and what my options might look like. And so then I think it makes it clear what motivates you. And that way your manager isn't surprised when you go in with the ask. Time to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Summer is prime running time. Whether you're gearing up for a fall marathon or you have a local 5K coming up, it's very likely you're spending your early summer mornings or steamy evenings on the run. And I promise there is no greater training buddy than a pair of Aftershocks wireless headphones. 
In the past, training during the summer, for me, inevitably meant going through at least four pair of headphones. They'd get so sweaty that they would break every single time. Plus, is there any feeling grosser than having a headphone cord bouncing against your hot, sweaty chest when you're 16 miles into a 20-mile long run? Ugh, gross. But Aftershocks takes care of all those problems. There are no cords, no wires, no tangles, and no weather-related issues. Aftershocks' wireless headphones are sweat-resistant and can hold up during even the gnarliest summer storms. They're my favorite headphones, and I promise they will be your favorite too. So get in on the Aftershocks action. Go to ontherun.aftershocks.com to get $55 off Trex Titanium and Trex Air bundles. These bundles include the wireless headphones of your choice, a shoe bag, a sport belt, and a water bottle. That's ontherun.aftershocks.com for $55 off. Now let's get back to the show. Maternity leave. When to tell your boss? Is it possible to negotiate maternity leave terms? And do you think that this will all get better in the future? Uh, I hope it all gets better. And and candidly, I hope it gets better for dads too. My hope is that um, all parents take more leave to spend some time with their children and that we normalize the experience of taking time to be with your children overall. So I am like maybe foolishly hopeful on that front that we will learn from other countries and get better. Um, to your question of can you negotiate your maternity leave, it completely and totally depends on your company, the organization, and the laws and whatever market you are uh, asking for. Um, typically, in most companies, they do have a maternity leave policy and it's codified, in which case you can negotiate around both paid and unpaid leave. You can negotiate around your return to work and what that could look like or the support or hours that you're working Um, As a general rule for when you should tell your boss, I think that really depends on your workplace and your boss and your comfort. We have had people who have told us before they've even told their families because they're so excited or because they're so sick and nauseous uh, in their first trimester. And then we've had people who just for comfort level reasons told us late in the game. I personally think that it's a good conversation to have with your manager uh, right around or before you're showing simply so that it's not awkward at that point. Um, but it's really, it's entirely up to you. Um, we've had candidates interview while pregnant. We just had actually a candidate, uh, let us know she was expecting and she's like, I'll drop out of the process. And we were like, why would you ever drop out of the process? We're interested in you as a candidate and would love to continue the conversation. And so I think that conversation is always tough. It's incredibly, uh, personal, but my hope would be that whether you tell a job interviewer or a manager, at whatever stage you're expecting, uh, that they will recognize it for what it is, which is amazing news for your family and amazing news for your career long-term too. Love to hear that. Okay, I got hired and I have had no raise in three years. HR says it's not in the budget. What should I do? That's a tough one. Uh, One of the mistakes I think people make is they think that promotions or raises should be based on your time and role. And, you know, not for nothing, it's a bit of a millennial stereotype, but there's no like, you don't get a promotion or raise every six months. What you do get a promotion or raise based off of is the value you create for the company. Um, and my sense based on the listener's question is that he or she feels like she's creating more value than the organization necessarily um, reflects. And so again, what I would do in that situation is say to the manager, here's the role in the job description, here's a list of the work that I'm doing, Uh, Here are some basic comps that we could talk about, but I wanted to talk about the fact that for me, compensation is really a driving factor, and I wanted to figure out how we can get me a meaningful raise in the next six months, so you put a timeline on it so that they don't keep putting you off. Um, 
once you've had those conversations, if you're truly not happy and feel you're underappreciated where you are, you should start looking elsewhere. But I think uh, rather than just going to HR and saying, I've been here three years and I deserve this, I would do the preparation, the work, and I would give your manager a chance to get it right. How do you ask for a promotion before you can check off all the qualifications? I read somewhere that men typically apply for positions where they are 65% qualified and women apply when they are 98% qualified for what is posted. They do. And so one of the things to train yourself early on in your career is to always be asking early how you can best advance and grow to get to your next step. So for example, um, four months after you become a manager, not saying when do I become a director at all, but saying, hey, Ali, I so appreciate that you've given me a promotion to manager. As you know, I'm someone who's pretty ambitious and long-term many years down the line, I want to be considered for a director role. What skills do you think I should work on that would make the biggest impact there? Or if you're starting to see movement in the business saying, hey, Allie, if anything were to ever open up on that team, I just wanted to raise my hand early to signal that I would be interested in pursuing that position. You can't expect people to guess that you were interested in something before it comes out. Um, And the worst that can happen is that someone says to you, you're not ready for this role, but recognizes that you're ambitious and want other leadership positions. I can't recommend it enough. I think more people should be courageously ambitious and clear about their ambition with their managers or leaders within their org. Ooh, I want a tattoo courageously ambitious on myself somewhere. I'm not it's a tattoo like a person, really but I hard like things to remind yourself of. Um, but I really just think it makes such a big difference to your long-term success. And once you get comfortable practicing that, it gets easier to ask for what you want. I love it. All right, my husband wants to move for his job, but it means trying to negotiate working remotely for me. I've been with the company for eight years. I'm well liked and have stellar reviews. But how do I go ahead and ask for something that isn't a company norm? Uh, So first things first, congratulations on what sounds like a great career, and it sounds like a great move for your family, so that's awesome. Uh, The best way to do it is to go to your manager directly and have a direct conversation. What I would say is, you know, you have to make it clear, like, are you definitely moving? If so, it sounds like yes. And so what I would do is be prepared that the company may say, no, you can't work remotely because we have a policy or because we have a good reason why, or they may say, I'm up for trying it out with you. Can we beta this and then figure it out kind of thing? And so you just have to be prepared for the fact that you might not get the answer you want. What I try and do is come in with, again, having done your homework. So, hey, you know, here's how the hours, if you're moving to a different coast, what hours would you work? Would you work regular hours? Like prepare some of the traditional opposition statements someone could come up with uh, to make sure that they have all the information you need. And I would also just write down the date you're considering the move, the reasons you're considering it, that kind of thing. And that way your manager has all the considerations on one piece of paper and one Google Doc uh, so that it's he or she is making the decision. They're informed on what's important to you and what your timeline looks like. So much good stuff. All right, third category. These are all on-the-job questions. So you have the job, now what? First up, I find myself as a young professional female in meetings all day, every day with older men that do not want to hear my ideas. How can I get them to start seeing me as a valued team member instead of as a kid or cute? So two things. One, uh, there are a lot of not so great guys out there. And then there are also a lot of wonderful, uh, men in the workforce. And so one thing is like, follow the advice of Mr. Rogers and find the helpers, like find people who care about gender equality in the workplace and ask them for help, ask them to give you space in a meeting, ask them for feedback on, Hey, why aren't my ideas coming through or how can I get there? Um, so start there, start by assuming positive intent and kind of working there. 
Two, I find preparation is key. Uh, men definitely have a tendency to take up some hot air, especially when there's a big group of them in a meeting and there's a young woman involved. And so I used to make preparation my real asset. So sending out data beforehand, sending out questions before, having a clear point of view in a memo beforehand, that sort of thing, using that to your advantage. Um, and then the third is at some point practicing calling out that behavior in a way that's not at first embarrassing to people. So at some point in your career, you may have to take a step back and go, hey, none of you are listening to me and I'm not cute. I actually have a strong opinion on this and here's why. But in the interim, you can work on actually turning to someone next to you and saying, hey, you know, Chip, in each of these meetings, one of the things I'm really working on is speaking up and sharing my opinion and voice because it's really important to be able to be a leader at this company. Um, it feels to me, honestly, like you interrupt me a little bit more than, than feels fair. What are your thoughts? What are your reactions? And if you do that one-on-one, -on -one, I found a lot of people will go, gosh, I didn't realize I was doing that, or I'm happy to help you amplify your voice, or you know what, Ellie, you've got to speak up a little louder, and here's why and how. Um, so I would say those are a few practical strategies to help move the needle. Um, and if those aren't working, I would go to your HR department and have them help you navigate that situation because... As you may have seen or heard on the news, I think times are changing as it relates to this front and you should and can have more support than ever from uh, people organizations to help you navigate this stuff. Awesome. My boss is unresponsive and not engaged in the work that I do. How do I approach her? Uh, not by saying that. <laughs> uh, yeah. So in general, human beings I found are never likely to come back with kindness if you approach them with something accusatory. Um, and so one of the things I would do is set up one-on-one -on -one time. Uh, if the person is unengaged and unresponsive, what I would do is prepare them for that conversation accordingly. So, hey, Allie, you know, in our next one-on-one -on -one discussion, one of the things that's really important to me is how you and I communicate. Um, I'm feeling a little bit like you're leaving a few deadlines, you know, things on the five-yard line. I wanted to connect on how we can get them forward together, so make it a team effort. Um, I also find that asking for feedback myself can help navigate. So for example, if someone's not responding to me or feels disconnected from the value of my work, one of the questions I want to know is, am I working on the right things? Because <laughs> if you don't seem to care about them, that's a red flag to me that they may not be the important things that really move the needle for our business. Um, and then the third thing I would do is make sure that you're working in a style ideally that helps meet them where they are. So for example, if you're always asking for feedback as they're walking out the door or always emailing them first thing in the morning, if they do drop off for their kids at school, um, try a feedback mechanism that meets them a little bit in the middle and try to have some empathy in your first conversation. From there, you can escalate that conversation and obviously engage uh, HR or their manager or something similar, but at first you really got to try to make it work um, by approaching them with some level of kindness. How do you work up the courage to compete with a coworker who is a friend for a promotion? <sighs> That's a tough one. First thing you have to remind yourself is in the long road of work, there will be promotions for everyone. So like one of, you know, Tracy Ellis Ross has this quote, like I was raised to believe there's enough sunlight for everyone. And I really believe that I truly have never felt, even if in the moment that I'm competing with someone, like there's a limited amount of, um, sunshine attention or promotions for anyone. And so it is very important to do what's right for you and to identify promotions or opportunities that are really critical, but rather than viewing it as there's a zero sum game. So Allie or I will get it instead. Think about, if I had to do everything I could possibly do to earn a promotion, what would I do? 
ultimately it's an individual battle. And so when you think of it that way, it becomes less a competition. And I actually think you can say explicitly, Ali, I just want to make it clear. I'm not competing against you for this role. I'm competing with myself and I'll be delighted for you if you get it. And hopefully you'll be the same for me. I actually think that's much less awkward than working alongside each other and not naming that awkwardness and tension. Uh, And that could ruin your friendship, which is no fun either. Yeah, I like that a lot. I work with great people in an interesting field, yet everyone seems constantly unhappy. What can I do? So I think, I hate to be like a Debbie Downer on this stuff, but I think that there is this massive phenomenon happening where when people are asked how they are, they say fine or busy. And I just think that's a shame. And so I think one of the first things this person could do is lead by example and say like, Hey, Ali, what's giving you joy today? We had a woman on our team lead off a team meeting say, saying, what was what was the last thing that made you crack up laughing? And that's such a better question than just like, how's it going, Ali? How is, how's your day? And so I think if you ask questions that elicit joy, you're more likely to get um, get joyful things. And then the second thing I would do is make an attempt to introduce things that make it both acceptable and encouraged Uh, to experience joy in the workplace. So for example, tomorrow, um, I've been working a little like crazy lately uh, in preparation for my sabbatical. We're having a random ice cream party tomorrow and we ordered Jenny's ice cream from Columbus because it's the best ice cream around. And I just think like, how can you be in a bad mood at the summer if you're eating ice cream or dairy-free ice cream if you're dietary restrictions um, suggest that. And so one thing I would try if I were her is to introduce some joy to your workplace, whatever joy means, um, and to set the tone. So we had our office manager in our Sydney office in Australia introduce something called Warm and Fuzzy Week. And they literally put old school like Valentine bags on the door and say nice things about each other. And it's fundamentally changed stressful times during that office's, you know, busy season because you open up your drawer and you just see a note that says like, Allie, you're so incredible. You're going to be such an amazing mom. You're helping lead the charge and set such a positive tone for people with Crohn's. And when you read that on a bad day, that gratitude is such a powerful emotion. So I would encourage this person to start some sort of joy ritual in the office and see how it goes. Okay, I work for myself, and so it's just me and my dog, and I don't think she can leave me notes. If I mail you a bag, will you just write down those things you just said and just fill it up and mail it back? I totally will, but I also just think, like, I think, you know, think about how many people respond to what you're doing on social and showed up for your live taping in San Diego and, like, you know, cheer you on at races. Those are themselves warm and fuzzies. Oh, absolutely. And so if you, you know, don't have a bag, it's a good reminder to keep a praise folder in your Gmail with reminders of positive things people have said about you or a postcard that someone sent you from around the world just saying they're thinking of you. Every single one of us has days that are hard and so creating rituals that give you a place to celebrate make a big difference. That is awesome. I love that so much. Okay, I'd love to hear your advice or suggestions toward applying for a different role within the same company. How do you address this with your immediate supervisor? Should you tell them when applying or apply and wait and see if you get asked for an interview? You should tell them when you're applying because otherwise you could get a phone call, they could get a phone call and not knowing would be a little embarrassing for them. And so one thing I try and do is make sure you're clear that like your long-term goal is to potentially explore this role on another team, but that you're happy or interested in what you're doing now. So for example, you applying to another job within HubSpot, for example, shouldn't threaten your direct boss. 
because they're able to retain you. Um, and if you're clear about what your ambitions are and what's driving that ambition, it should be easy for them to support you. I know that in certain teams and with certain managers, it's not always that easy. Um, but I recommend telling your manager to the extent that it's possible as you're applying. How much time would you give yourself at a job to decide if it's the right path for you? This is a tough one. I'm not a believer. If you're in a toxic work situation, I'm not a believer that you should stay a year just to say it's on your resume. If anything, if you know it's the wrong place for you six weeks in, I actually think the right thing to do is to go. Then you never have to tell anyone you were there. You never have to put it on your resume. Um, I think sometimes we all make decisions that aren't right and companies make bad hiring decisions. And I think life would actually be better if more people said, actually, this isn't working and left early. If you do decide to stay and you're just trying to navigate it, I personally think a year is a good timeline. Um, and it gives you a sense of the organization. It gives you a sense of other people you could potentially work with or for. Um, but I don't believe in staying. I've had a lot of people who have been at a job for six weeks and they're like, this is not at all what I was sold. There's a difference between having a bad day and it being a bad company for your growth. If it's the latter, you should not stay just because some career book for dummies told you that you should stay for a year. Okay, this next question might be my favorite of all the ones we received because a lot of them were logistics about raises, promotions, and I get it. Very real stuff that is great to talk about. This question, I love the tone of it. It's, what advice do you have for things you can do within your first 30 to 90 days at a new job to be an awesome contributor? Oh, I love this person. Right? What a great positive attitude. The first thing you can do to make a great impression is to take a genuine interest in other people. Uh, so be nice to every receptionist, to every EA, to every facilities person, those people become the lifeblood of an organization. And so demonstrating great kindness to them, I think makes a big difference. I think people are so interested in managing up and trying to impress executives. If you spent as much time trying to impress your peers and the people who support you as you do them, uh, you will be just fine. Um, two, pick something you're incredibly good at. Um, so one of the things, uh, Jason Kulig, who you and I both know through November Project things, he and I both agree that the key to a great internship is to find something you can do that no one else can do. And that thing can actually be really mundane and boring. Um, but I would identify early something that you add great value to the org. And by great value, I mean, maybe you're just really good at greeting new hires and employees and making them feel welcome. Maybe you're really good at running the monthly sales meeting, that kind of thing. But pick something that you're really good at it and excel at it. Uh, and then the third thing I would do is don't be afraid to do big things and to tackle big things. So for example, early on, I think most people are trying to figure out what's the project I can take on that like won't get me fired where I can just hide in the back. And what you really want to do if you want to excel is not be afraid to take on big work and you'll never be as excited or energized uh, as you will be 30, 60 or 90 days in. So volunteer for some tough projects. Uh, final piece of advice I would recommend is get to know people outside your team. So one of the biggest mistakes people often make is they get super siloed. They just get to know the marketing team or they just get to know the HR team and getting feedback from other parts of the organization is super helpful. So take someone you don't know from another team out to coffee. It will get you in the habit early of getting out of your own lane and comfort zone. This next one is great because it starts with, hi, Katie. And I just thought that Hi. was adorable. Hi, Katie. I think you are adorable. <laughs> Hi, whoever you are. You seem lovely. How did you feel going into your first job? Do you have any advice for people starting their career and how to deal with any insecurity? 
So uh, how did I feel going to my first job? Nervous. I think everyone is nervous. The dirty little secret is every single person is nervous. And so when you know that everyone else is nervous, it makes it easier, I think, to say hello. I was new a lot at schools when I was growing up. And so I just got used to getting over my awkwardness by introducing myself to people and asking questions about them. I think that makes it a lot easier. Um, Some very tactical tips. I pick out my outfit really early and I do the touch the door thing so I know exactly where I'm going. I know exactly what train I'm taking. I know exactly what bus I'm going to. I want no surprises that day. Um, And I also just remind myself that morning, they picked you for a certain reason. You picked them. Do your best. Make good friends. My mom always says, raise your hand if you if you have a question, if you know the answer. Sorry, raise your hand if you know the answer. So don't be shy about like actually putting your hand up and volunteering for things. Um, and then recognize that ultimately they invested in you and you're going to invest in them and that the best thing you can do is to learn and grow and be present there. So don't have distractions. Don't be on your phone that day. Really try and be present and enjoy the moment because it's an exciting new chapter and beginning and you want to take it all in. All right. This, this is our second to last question. It might be a bit of a doozy. How do I figure out what I actually want to do with my life? Yeah, that's a big existential (laughs) question. So you need to Um, answer this for this person, Katie. You need to figure it out for them right now. I will do my very best. I think that people put too much pressure on a career, a job, or knowing what's perfect. What you really need to know is what's perfect for you right now and what gives you energy and what drives you. And so one of the things I would do is ask some people from different stages of your life hey, you've known me a long time or you've known me a really short time and I'm trying to navigate what might make me happy and fulfilled long-term in my career. I wanted to get your take. And you'll be surprised what people share and what people say and all that kind of good stuff. Um, But I think that helps give you a place to get started. The second thing, and I think I mentioned this last time I talked, but what gives you energy when no one else is watching? What books do you pick up? What tasks do you do when no one else is watching? Uh, And then the third is what kind of lifestyle do you want to lead? So it's impossible, as far as I can tell, to, um, you know, work in a big city accounting firm, but always be, you know, at your lakeside in Maine and sipping coffee each morning. And so what I would think about is what's really important to you lifestyle wise, and then it gets easier to narrow down your choices. I think the other thing to remind yourself is that most of the most interesting jobs that exist now didn't even exist 30 years ago. So rather than thinking, how can I, so a good example that we use at HubSpot a lot is um, a user experience researcher or a user experience designer. Those are careers that I don't know about you, but I don't know anyone who grew up wanting to be at. And they're some of the most interesting and customer centric roles in our organization. And so rather than trying to find the job description for what you want to do, instead think about things that drive you. And the way the workforce is changing, you never know one of those roles could exist in two years, five years, or five months. But don't put pressure on finding the perfect thing. Instead, figure out what drives you and go from there. All right, I'm going to add an addendum question to that because that kind of got me thinking a little. I remember when you were on the show the first time, you talked about how you, you know, you went to law school, you took the LSAT, you you didn't have a ton of luck with the LSAT and you decided you were not going to pursue that path. And so I'm wondering from your perspective, and I ask because this is something I've struggled with in the past, which is worrying about how other people see 
my career and what I'm doing. Like even now, when I tell people, when people say, oh, what do you do? I still say, well, I'm a freelance writer and editor, even though like my focus right now is 100% this podcast and that being my job. But I still feel like either people don't get it, they don't understand it, they don't see it or respect it as a job. And I still, with all the confidence that I have and I've developed, I still kind of go back on that. I'm wondering if you have any experience or advice with, thinking or worrying about how other people see your career, your choices, your, you know, your career trajectory. So I was having coffee and breakfast uh, last week with Mita Malik, who's one of my friends who works at Unilever. And one of the questions she asked, which is so simple, but so profound is what's holding you back? And she asked people a lot of times, like, so for example, great. So Ali, we just talked about stereotypes that hold women back. What's holding you personally back? So why aren't you telling people that you do the podcast full time? It would be great for marketing. It would be more likely that people remember the name of your podcast and recommend it to their friends. And oh, by the way, you're creating space for so many other women who want to be entrepreneurs to follow their dream. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, that's what's holding me back is people's uncertainty about what it is or their judgment or whatever. And all of a sudden, if you give voice to that, it's a lot easier to go, yeah, you're right. Who cares? I should absolutely tell people that I run the podcast. And so one of the questions I've been asking myself lately is like, what's holding you back? And if it's other people's expectations of you, if anything, putting them out there will help you defy those expectations and create a new path. And one of the things when I'm struggling with that, that I always remind myself of that helps me get over that hump is my little sisters. And so forever, whoever it is for you, uh, who you think you can inspire, whether it's your goddaughter, your niece, your future daughter, whatever, whomever it is for you, figure out a person that you kind of stepping into your own space and being confident can help. And I find for me that makes it easier to own your confidence, to own your space and to actually make it clear like, yep, here's what I'm doing and to overcome self-doubt. Okay. That's my new challenge. I love it. I accept it. Great. Okay, our last question, I told everyone they would be anonymous, but I'm going to out this person. This question comes from the very first guest on the Alley on the Run show, Emily Halnin, who saw the opportunity to ask a career question, and she asked the following. I can't take my dog to work. Do I risk job loss to smuggle my schnauzer into the office? Yes or no? Uh Probably no, because there are a bunch of health regulations that unfortunately guide dog policies. And so it may be that there are very good reasons at her job. With that said, one of the things that I love that she did uh, by you adding her is like, she wasn't afraid to talk about something that motivates her personally for where she works long term. And so I would absolutely not be afraid to make it clear to your employer that that's something important to you. Um, and as you're thinking about your next job search to put that on your on your list, um, I think, to be honest, people used to think of those things as silly or fluffy. And the reality is, if your dog is something that you care more about than anything else, or that allows you to run more often or lead a more healthy, happy lifestyle, I don't think there's anything wrong with finding a company uh, that supports it. And by the way, we are very much hiring at HubSpot for uh, for dog lovers. Wait, are people allowed to bring their dogs to work at HubSpot? Oh, God, yeah. We brought this... <sighs> Uh, so our, our uh, co-founder, Brian Halligan, uh, is a big dog lover. We have dog pillows here that uh, show the faces of dogs uh, that are HubSpot pets. Uh, so we are very much a dog-friendly workforce here at HubSpot. Okay. Well, Katie, I am 
like worried for you right now based on the fact that like 70 people wrote in saying that they want to change industries or get new jobs or they're looking to apply somewhere new. I feel like an influx of resumes is about to come your way. That's great. We would absolutely love it. The one caveat is we get so many of them uh, that I can't personally respond to every single one, especially given that I'm going to be on sabbatical. But yes, if you love uh, dogs, great work and flexibility, uh, this is definitely a great spot for you. And if you need someone to step in and fill your role for the month that you're out, I would love Ellie and I are very willing and able to spend a month in Boston. I'm just putting that out there. I promise I will let you know. Why don't you first start with the micro risk of saying you're an amazing podcaster and leader and that everyone should listen to your podcast every time they ask what you do. And then we'll revisit the whole CPO thing from there. Does that sound like a reasonable deal? That sounds perfect. Yes. Katie, I love having you on this show. I am so inspired right now. Just like last time. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing So much great advice, insight, and wisdom. It is such a treat to have you. It was a treat to be on here, and I'm just so excited. I think uh, one hope that I have for people who listen to the podcast is if you got a tiny bit of confidence from listening to it, pass it on. Say something nice to someone next to you. Say, go for this next promotion, Allie. I've got you. You're my friend. That kind of thing. I think confidence is contagious. I love it. Katie Burke, you are the best. Enjoy your sabbatical. You deserve it. And can't wait to see what you do when you come back refreshed and ready to get back at it. Thanks so much, Allie. And uh, obviously, very best of luck to you. I'm super excited that you're growing not just your impact on the world, but also your family as well. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Alley on the Run show. I hope you learned a lot and are feeling ready to go out and take on the world in the office and beyond. Like Katie said, find your passion, chase it down, and enjoy every single day of loving what it is you get to do. And not that you should spend your work hours on social media, but if you do find yourself on Instagram and Twitter, I'm there at Alley on the Run one and on the Alley on the Run Facebook page. If you loved this episode, I would so appreciate if you would take a couple minutes to leave a rating and review for the show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or the listening app of your choice. It really does help grow the show, and I appreciate it so much. Finally, let's give a little more love to this episode's sponsor, Aftershocks. Visit ontherun.aftershocks.com for $55 off Trex Titanium and Trex Air bundles, which include wireless headphones, a branded shoe bag, a sport belt, and a water bottle. Now go do what you love, be awesome at it, and thanks for joining me on the run.